This is season six of the Mini Culture Podcast. This season, we are focusing on Minnesota history. These pictures of the Minneapolis truck driver's strike, typical of disorders flaring up in various cities. I'm a woman come to speak in tongues of dust. We're going to meet activists who influenced our culture. That just really struck me, and it was like planting a seed. We'll explore the future of our natural history. And we say Ashkigin, new growth. And those things are needed and uh, the forest needs to fire it. And we'll fall down some truly weird rabbit holes. How many pounds of cheese do you guys normally have in production at one given moment? Somewhere between a quarter and a half a million pounds of cheese. We'll be tracing all sorts of histories to better understand how we got to the Minnesota we know today. Had either one of them not fulfilled their part of the bargain, mail wouldn't exist today. And trust me, as a black Eritrean immigrant, I've got some questions. So sit back, turn up the volume in your headphones, and get ready. It's all coming up this season on Mini Culture. I'm your host, John Gebertatios. Minnesota's moose count is the highest it's been since 2011. For those of you who are moose people, you probably already knew that. And if you're not a moose person, let me tell you why that's important. Behind that encouraging number, there's a long story of decline. And the people leading the fight to save the moose say the iconic animal is not even close to being out of the woods. KFAI's Emily Havoc takes us to northeastern Minnesota to explore the keystone species past, present, and future. Okay, I'm ready. I'm with a team from the Trust Lands Agency, the wildlife department for the Grand Portage Band of Lake Superior Chippewa. She moved pretty far pretty fast right before she kind of pulled up in this area. We're just outside the town of Hoveland in far northeastern Minnesota, less than 20 miles from the Canadian border. We've traveled inland from Lake Superior along the Arrowhead Trail, hopped on snowmobiles, and now we've hiked in by snowshoe all to find this moose. Biologist E.J. Isaac is leading me through the woods, trying to give me a look at her. The ears are a bit droopy. If you notice, they're not perked up, which they should be, very alert. Can you tell what's wrong with her? Something is, because she's a blood. This moose is one of about 50 that the Grand Portage Trustlands Department has collared as part of a years-long intensive effort to find out what is happening to Minnesota's moose. The team saw from her GPS signals that she hasn't moved in five days. They came out here to investigate. Yeah, I see it. Yeah, I can't see, but looks like her left hind leg. Something's not right. According to the Minnesota DNR, the moose population in northeastern Minnesota dropped dramatically from about 2006 to 2013, from almost 9,000 animals to about 2,700, and no one knew why. The first culprits that came to mind were predators and hunting, but a massive research effort was needed to find the answer. 
My name is Seth Moore. I'm the Director of Biology and Environment for the Grand Portage Band of Lake Superior Chippewa. Dr. Seth Moore arrived in Grand Portage in 2005. He started studying moose right away because at that point, the population was already in trouble. The moose populations had begun to decline starting at about 1990 and honestly continuing to this day if you look at the trend over time. Because of that population decline starting in 1990, I really wanted to focus our energy and efforts on essentially seventh generation planning or this idea that that each person is touched from a great grandparent to a great grandchild over seven generations and it's our goal in the Ojibwa life view to maintain the, the planet in this place in a way that can be used seven generations from now. While the moose population in northeastern Minnesota was steeply declining, the population in the northwestern part of the state went down to nearly zero. It felt like a warning. In 2010, Seth's team started partnering with the University of Minnesota to start collaring moose. For the first time, they could track them and find out what was killing them. When a moose died, they'd send samples into the lab for testing. We were able to determine that brainworm, a parasite transmitted from deer to moose, kills somewhere between 25 to 35% of the adult moose um, in the population. We found that winter ticks, a species that is increasing in abundance, um, was killing about 20% of, of our adult moose. And overall, health-related issues were killing about 80% of our adult moose. Essentially, 85% of our moose were dead on the landscape with no signs of physical human impact or predator impact. Then they started collaring the moose calves. They found that in the first two weeks of life, 80% of them were taken out by bears and wolves. It may seem like there are a bunch of separate killers here, but behind all of them, one looms largest. Climate change. Early snowmelt is increasing the winter tick populations. Longer growing seasons and milder winters have also led to a hugely increased deer population. Those deer have been able to move further north, encroaching on moose territory, providing more food for predators and increasing predator populations. And with the deer comes a predator more ruthless than a wolf or bear, brainworm. The brainworm lives harmlessly inside a deer, and it lays eggs, which grow into larvae, which are pooped out and eaten by snails and slugs. When those slugs are eaten by a moose, it's deadly. The worm can't find a suitable home inside the moose brain, so it burrows. And can you describe what a moose looks like when it has brainworm? Frequently, the brain part that is affected is one side or the other. So the moose will walk in circles with their head tilted, one ear back and one ear forward. It gets to a degree to which the moose oftentimes can't operate first its hindquarters and then its front quarters. So sometimes you'll see a moose bedded down, head tilted. It tries to rise, it'll lift on its front legs and it can't move its back legs at all. And then as that progresses even further, the moose can't rise at all. Ultimately it just dies of starvation or dehydration or predation. Many, many brainworm infected moose are preyed on by, by wolves as well. To 
understand the implications of a dying moose population, we have to look back into history. The relationship between the moose and the Anishinaabe, or Ojibwa, people in this region is a long one. The Grand Portage people have been part of the Great Lakes Basin and Lake Superior watershed for thousands and thousands of years. Moose used to be just one of two primary subsistence species. The other was extirpated. That means they're not extinct, but they died off in the region. Historically, there were two subsistence species on the land. There were caribou and moose. Uh, caribou have become extirpated as a consequence of, of human impacts to the landscape and high levels of harvest in the past. So moose really are the, the last of the original subsistence species for the Grand Portage Band. Subsistence hunting is a practice that can be hard for Western audiences to get our heads around. Subsistence hunting is really what all hunting used to be. It's essentially hunting for nutrition. It's not hunting for sport. It's not hunting to put a trophy on the wall. It is hunting to put meat in the freezer to help to sustain a family over the year. Subsistence hunting is healthy spiritually, it's healthy culturally, and it's healthy nutritionally. You cannot find healthier foods than those that are harvested in the wild. In fact, one moose can feed that entire family for the whole year. And it's not just the meat that goes to use. A lot of folks here will harvest the hide from a moose and they'll use that for drums um, or for moccasins. In the past, you know, bones were used for various tools and implements. Um, sinews and tendons were used for tying and strapping and cordage. The members of the Grand Portage Band of Lake Superior Chippewa have legal rights to hunt moose, even outside the reservation. That's because of something called the 1854 Treaty. When the tribes in the Midwest ceded more than 5 million acres of land to the United States government, they reserved the harvest rights. The tribes reserved the rights forever to hunt, fish, and gather on those lands. Dr. Moore says public sentiment about the tribal harvest was probably at its worst in the 1980s. Now he thinks understanding is growing. Many people in the United States feel that, that hunting and fishing rights were given to the tribes. They were actually reserved by the tribes on these pieces of land in exchange for the federal government to be able to use this land for some other purposes. The Grand Portage Band has a limit of one moose per household for its subsistence hunt. The total tribal harvest from all three tribes who were signatories to the 1854 treaty is about 40 to 70 animals a year. Even so, with that big drop in the moose population in the early 2000s, many people believed human hunting was a driving factor. But collaring revealed this was not true. The population of moose declined by 1,500 animals in one year. 80 animals were hunted. The moose population is important for food and culture, but it's also vital to this area for other reasons. It's what biologists call a keystone species, an animal that holds an ecosystem together. So moose is the primary native prey species of this region. So 
wolves, bear, um, to some extent, lynx and coyotes, all fed on moose, either adults or young, historically. So, so they help to drive the populations of these predator species. They also modify the forest just by virtue of the fact that they browse. So when they browse on different tree species, it actually triggers growth of those species. So moose actually manage the landscape to a small degree with their browsing, but they also help to support all the other players in the ecosystem. Once it was a mystery what's killing the moose. But after years of hard work and tracking, the moose themselves have given us the answers. It was easy for us to see why the population was declining. We had high adult mortality, and we had no new calves coming into the population. So it left us with the challenge of how do we address this? Dr. Moore thinks there are some fairly simple solutions. Restore the young forests that moose need by doing prescribed burns and some clear cutting and limit deer, wolf, and bear populations with hunting. Within the bounds of the Grand Portage Reservation, Dr. Moore's team found that increasing the bear harvest by 17% dropped the moose calf predation rate by 100%. They've also been trying out permethrin on the moose to ward off ticks. Most wildlife ecologists and most Ojibwa people prefer to allow the environment to manage itself. And that is our overall principle, and that's what our preference is. But it's, it's my view, both philosophically and scientifically, is we can get to a state where we have damaged the environment to a degree that it can't really recover. And that's where I feel like we have a, a moral obligation to try to address these things. The moose population has stabilized over the past several years, and this year's count was 4,700 moose, statistically steady, and the highest number since 2011. Dr. Moore believes the last couple of more severe winters have helped the moose. But the moose are by no means out of the woods. We haven't seen enough sustained growth to indicate that the population is rebounding. Could we lose the moose population up here? I think the potential exists, but I think it's something that we could easily do something about if we if we did desire to do so. And I say that with such confidence because we have very specifically measured all the factors that affect the moose population. And if you equally systematically address those factors, there is no recourse other than to change the trend. To enact solutions, the public needs to get interested in the moose population. And there are allies who can help with this. Dr. Moore calls them science transfer people, journalists, photographers, writers, people who can communicate the science in a way that captures the public's emotion and passion. Cool. Good. Yeah. Okay. People like Katie Mum. Right now we are at almost the start of the Gunflin Trail. The Gunflint Trail is a 57-mile scenic byway that starts in Grand Marais, about 35 miles southwest of Grand Portage. The trail heads inland from Lake Superior and up toward Canada, winding through the Superior National Forest. Uh, so we'll head up and I'll check a few of the spots where moose seem to frequent or where I've been seeing them lately. 
um, and hope for some luck. Katie is not a wildlife biologist. She's a photographer, and she co-owns The Fisherman's Daughter, a restaurant in Grand Marais, with her fiancé. She lives on the Gunflint Trail. So usually um, I will go like three to four days a week, and then usually I'll try to go twice um, on the days that I am not at our restaurant. I'll go in the morning and then again at sunset. So you put a lot of time into this. Yes, a lot of miles and a lot of time. I think I'm on my third vehicle because <laughs> I just run him into the ground with miles. My fiance is always like, you know you put like 10,000 miles on your car since we've gotten it a couple months ago. I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> didn't even notice, but it's worth it. Yeah, why are you doing this? It kind of goes back to the first time I saw a moose on the Gunflin Trail. I was living at Bearskin Lodge um, and I was kind of the only employee during the shoulder season. That's what people up here call the time between tourist seasons. And I stumbled upon my first moose um, and I just had this tiny little basic camera I've had my whole life. Um, and then I was just hooked after that. And then it's just been this whole like journey of realizing that like what the pictures I was taking, the joy that they bring to other people. So now it's like, I just feel like I share um, these pictures with these people that don't get the experience to see moose um, as much as I do or if ever. She posts the photos for her more than 7,000 followers on Instagram. She shares them in Facebook groups and she publishes them in the local paper, the Cook County Herald. She's become pretty well known around here for photos of all kinds of wildlife, but the moose are Katie's queens. The moose take the prize for sure. I don't think I've ever sold a bear print. I'll never sell a bear print, but the moose are the top thing that people want. Katie finds that when tourist numbers are down, the moose are easier to spot. When they're up, they retreat back into the boundary waters where they're harder to find. But at this time of year in early April, they often lick the salt on the road or forage nearby for little branches. Katie hopes that the people who see her photos will feel what she feels when she sees a moose. This is their home, I'm a guest. You know, they're welcoming me in and then like the way I respect them in return, I get the photos that I do. So I feel like, you know, when I'm photographing a moose, it just like, feels like time stands still almost. Like, you know, it's just me and this moose and then I'm just in their territory. Katie looks for tracks and droppings. Once she finds them, she'll stay in that area, visiting every day or sometimes twice a day until she spots the moose. She says often they stay within a 10 to 15 mile radius for at least a few days. We're exploring new territory today, Hungry Jack Road, based on a tip. I don't come down here very often, but uh, someone had said that they saw moose down here. And those are moose tracks, right down the middle of the road. That's moose tracks? Mm -hmm. I'm gonna double check, but. There's been a, mom, a cow moose down here with her yearling. So there's, looks like bigger tracks and smaller tracks. We drive these back roads a bit, looking for signs of the moose and her yearling. Well, moose droppings. So I must be on the right path. <laughs> no luck today, but Katie's not discouraged. Those are new tracks to me. Um, so that's exciting. Then it kind of like fuels the fire to like, okay, now tomorrow I have to go back and check that same spot. Um, and usually with like persistence, I'll, you know, see those moose. Over the years, Katie's worked to educate herself on the plight of the moose. She even reads Dr. Seth Moore's research. 
and she thinks a lot about the work that his team is doing to help sustain the moose population so she can continue to interact with them and share them with others. I told her about the moose I met the other day and how she looked at us. They have no idea that there's like these people fighting so hard for them, you know, to rebound and to help their population. You wish you could just tell them like you I, like that, you know, that moose that was injured, like you wish you could just say like, you know, we're just we're here to help you. But obviously they have no idea Like there's an intruder. <laughs> I think if we get any closer through this open area, there's a chance she might want to charge us. So just from a human safety standpoint, we might skirt back the way we came. Got it. Do you remember Todd from the GPS locations? Wasn't she coming from the south, kind of? Yeah, she entered across the creek, I think about 22 days ago now. And then- Todd Couts, a postdoc researcher who's living here and helping the team, and E.J. Isaac, a Grand Portage Band fish and wildlife biologist, are conferring on what to do. They found wolf tracks, and they think that's what caused the injury. E.J. makes the call. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think all we can do is probably just kind of go back and get another look as she moves around just to see what it looks like, but um, nothing more we can do. She's too alert to get any closer. Nor can we patch her up, even if we could. Even if they could, this isn't a situation where they would intervene. I think these are probably the hardest things as a biologist and manager to know that we have an injured moose. The wolves have attacked this moose and injured it to the point that doesn't want to go anywhere and is, is just staying in one spot. There's nothing we can do about it. The animal is not injured or suffering to a point we would ever have to intervene but we, um, we just have to let nature kind of play out. And I guess we're hoping, crossing our fingers, that well, maybe this moose can heal from its injuries and continue. It's very unlikely, but in our head, that's what we at least hope. It's got a chance to make it. Yeah. And wolves are just doing what they're built to do. Part of the natural cycle. This is a balance of predators and prey, and this is, this is real, this is life. As we hike back to our snowmobiles, we talk about what will happen to the moose. Not just this one. Right now, we've got an opportunity in Minnesota where we have moose, at least for the last eight to 10 years, relatively stable population that they're holding on. We can implement management changes to benefit moose. We have an opportunity and we feel a responsibility to maintain moose as much as we can into the future. If we did nothing and waited 50 or 100 years, we won't be able to get moose back and they're likely gonna be at a state where they would be unrecoverable. You know, the Grand Porridge Band has, have been stewards of the landscape and the environment for forever. So it's, it's really a responsibility that we have to, to make sure we protect the ecosystem as best we can and all of its parts. And moose are one of those parts that could use our help right now. Yeah, the, the moose that you went out on last weekend died a couple days after you left. Um, That's Dr. Seth Moore again. 
My team did a, a full necropsy on it. The cause of death for this moose appears to be just as expected. Not disease, but an age-old wolf attack. She is in the minority. Is it emotional for you? I mean, it used to be. You know, I, I don't get as affected by it as much because I get desensitized. I've seen lots of sick animals. I've had to kill lots of animals over time. So you get somewhat desensitized to the actual process. What saddens me is seeing declines at a population scale. You know, I'm a, I'm a population biologist, so I don't think about the individuals as much anymore. My concerns have shifted more broadly. I'm concerned about the population. And so that's when I get sad, is seeing a population declining and not being able to do anything about it. This is Emily Havik for KFAI. If you're interested in helping Minnesota's moose population, Dr. Moore says you can't underestimate the power of a letter. He writes plenty of them to lawmakers and commissioners. And he says because so few people actually take the time to do this, he believes one person's letter can carry the weight of tens of thousands of voices. Thanks to Grand Portage Trust Lands Agency for allowing us to record their fieldwork for this episode. We've linked to a video of a moose suffering from brainworm in the show notes. Support for Mini Culture on KFAI has been provided by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Season six of the Mini Culture podcast is executive produced and edited by Julie Sensulo, with editing help from Ryan Dawes and Melissa Olson. I'm your host, John Gibertatios. Thanks for listening, friends. Thank you.